Hello, everyone, and welcome to Sex, Laws and Audio Tapes. This is a public legal education podcast created by law students from BPP University. This podcast is primarily designed to support secondary school teachers who are delivering the statutory sex and relationships education syllabus. Each week, we'll be exploring the law around a particular SRE topic. My name is Maya, and I'm here with my co-hosts Dorothy, Clara and Grace. This week, we have a very special episode of the podcast for you because we're joined by Jess Phillips. Jess Phillips has been the Labour MP for Birmingham Yardley since 2015. She's also been the Shadow Minister for Domestic Violence and Safeguarding since 2020. Prior to entering the world of politics, Jess spent several years working for the domestic violence charity Women's Aid, which she describes as being a life-changing experience. She started off as a PA at the charity and within a few years was addressing a UN Congress on the topic of violence against women. When asked whether she would consider running as MP, Jess replied, I'll give it a go. And since then, her straightforward, passionate and unflinching approach to politics has stood out in a world in which politicians so often don't say what they mean. Today, we're going to be talking to Jess on the topic of domestic abuse. We'll discuss her career, the Domestic Abuse Act and the role that teachers and education plays in addressing the issue. Thank you so much for for being here. We're really, really appreciative of your time. Uh, We know how precious it is. So you have been an advocate for survivors of domestic abuse for so many years now. I just wanted to ask, first of all, why this is an issue you care so much about. So before I entered Westminster, I worked with lots of different groups of vulnerable women, whether it was new mums, young mums working with those to sort of uh, dealing with having a baby on their own, working at Women's Aid uh, with victims of domestic violence, sexual violence, human trafficking and female offenders and refugee women. At every stage in my career before um, Parliament, I saw just the, the sheer scale and volume of how women's life experiences hold them back, how they have less power, and the consequences of that on their safety, security, uh, both, uh, you know, in their lives, but also economically. So you mentioned Women's Aid and, of course, all the frontline experience that you've had. Um, I've heard you discuss how transformative that was for your political voice. Did those experiences show you that this is a political issue? It's completely and utterly a political issue. It is only a political issue uh, in reality. So domestic violence, people frequently wrongly think that it is uh, something that happens because people, men have anger management issues or because of substance misuse issues. Um, But uh, I'm afraid to say that just simply doesn't bear out uh, in the reality of the situation. Men attack women in their homes. Domestic abuse and sexual violence happens because of power and control. So men who sexually assault women don't sexually assault anyone who could fire them. You don't grope your boss at work, you grope your secretary. Um, And that is entirely 
because of the power dynamics that exist in our society and the power dynamics exist in our society because of um, the political structures and um, that, that we all live under uh, that are patriarchal. If women were completely liberated, if women had economic equality with men and power equality with men, domestic abuse would reduce. What you said about anger management, I mean, I, I spent a few months working in a, a refuge and the number of times that um, professionals would say to me, he's in anger <sighs> management classes, it's That's a rubbish. he's working on it. Yeah, um, no, what men need to work on is the reason why they feel the need to control women. And I'm not suggesting that can't be worked on. It absolutely can be worked on and should be worked on, uh, both um, in response, but also in prevention. But the idea that men are intrinsically angry just lets them off the hook. It's, it's patronising in a way to men. It's horrible um, to men. And yet yeah, it's often the thing that is used to defend them. It's so clear, even just from talking to you about this for five minutes, that you, I mean, it's so genuine, which you don't see with politicians at all, really. How do you manage and, and this is something I think we all want to learn from. How do you manage to care about something, talk about it every day without driving yourself mad? Yeah. yeah. Um, well, I've been talking about it for a long time. So practice. And, yeah. uh, you know, as young people, all I can say to you is don't ever underestimate um, the, the effect of practice. People think that people like me stand up without notes and read things out as if it is completely like natural and as, as if it was an innate skill that I was born with. It isn't. I, I've practiced over many, many years. Um, just like you can do your shoes up now without having to look it up. It's exactly the same thing. I mean, I assume you can. <laughs> <laughs> Velcro is available otherwise. The truth is, is that I, I am very, very well practiced at being frustrated and picking myself back up again. Uh, sometimes I don't cope. People often say to me, oh, did you see that amazing documentary? Or did you watch like, you know, 24 hours in police custody and it was a DV case? And I think now I watched the Bake Off because, I, I you know, I, I, don't, I don't spend my evenings watching hard-hitting documentaries about domestic abuse. I'm not going to lie to you because I deal with it all day. I do have to switch off from it. I physically cannot watch uh, violence against women on the screen. Yeah. I understand that, it, you know, for lots of people, it helps carry the story forward and help people understand and see the harshness of it. But to me, it makes a vision in my head that I then will associate with the women who sit in front of me day in, day out. And I can't I can't cope with that. Uh, and so I don't I don't like the visualization of violence against women and girls is in my view largely spun by male gaze so mm. for lots of years you saw posters of it always used to be like a woman with a black eye on the poster or a woman caring in the corner but that is a, a man's view of what a woman in a domestic abuse situation looks like and it it wasn't it wouldn't appeal to a victim on a bus say oh that's me I find that I have to switch off from it, otherwise I would go mad. And that's the way I can cope with it, is to focus on the, the stories of the individual um, in front of me and the stories of woman kindness. And that's how I don't go mad. But the fact that things don't change is the thing that will send you mad uh, eventually. Mm. And that you have to keep on bloody explaining yourself to everybody all the bloody time. That is really tedious. That is uh, one of the things I was going to ask you about, actually, is the idea of progress, because I 
was listening to an interview with you and you described growing up as a young woman in the 90s as being a massive contradiction because you were like on the one hand there's this ladette culture women feel so liberated on the other hand there's this male gaze that's everywhere and I was thinking about it and I thought that actually really rings true to what I sometimes feel about being a young woman growing up now because we're told that we can be whatever we want to be we have all of this freedom but we're still having conversations about violence being scared to go home on your own at night of male objectification so i mean do, do you think there has been progress of course there has been progress in some areas mm. um but not in others and the one the experience you uh, describe also it's a total myth that you can do whatever you want yeah. It's just not true. Yeah. It's not true for anyone apart from um, the very, 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 very privileged few who can do whatever they want. Um, but actually, even what they want is defined within the parameters of what they know. It's a total myth. And it's, it, it actually holds women back. I think the idea that, oh, you can you can, you know, be the head of a FTSE 100. I mean, it's incredibly unlikely because there's only actually been eight of them who have ever been like you, but you can do it. Uh, it's just like, no, 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 we, I can't do it until I fundamentally change society. Um, but look, I think there has been progress without question. There's been legislative progress where the practice on the ground has yet caught up with legislative change to improve things for women and girls uh, and the best example of that is that in 1974 we packed we passed the equal pay laws still waiting for the ground to catch up with that particular piece of legislation one day one day soon not necessarily in my lifetime we make incremental progress all the time and we make attitudinal progress one thing your generation has that my generation did not have is the uh willingness to speak about it publicly i mean also you have the opportunity we didn't really have public forums um, in the same way when I was young. Um, the, the willingness of women to talk about it and say, I'm not going to tolerate this, even though they often. The worst thing is, is don't feel guilty when you say, I'm not going to tolerate this enough is enough. And then something bad happens to you. You will inevitably use that, the, the sort of feminist sloganization as a reason to attack yourself. Like, oh, I shouldn't, I shouldn't have put up with this. It's like, no, 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 you didn't. You you live in a society that made you put up with this. That is such a good point. Yeah. Sorry, I feel like I should be much more positive. The <laughs> world can change. The thing is, the world can change and it will change incrementally and there will always be progress. But don't beat yourself up if you're not the progress you wish to see because, you know, who's not doing that? The same, your equivalent men. Hi Jess, it's Dorothy. Congratulations on passing the new Domestic Abuse Act in April. So in case our audience are not aware of that, can you briefly describe what are the key changes of this act? Is that for the first time ever, in law, it is basically illegal for local council areas not to provide refuge accommodation. So before the bill, um, refuge accommodation exists in uh, areas that have the foresight to fund it. So Birmingham City Council uh, funds refuge accommodation. Windsor Council didn't fund it. They, they sent their women somewhere else. They, they would put 
their bed spaces elsewhere. Um, I, I have to say, uh, on a completely non-political point, uh, it was largely Labour councils that had uh, funded uh, refugees, uh, and that's largely because women are more likely to be on Labour councils. Um, and um, so, but now for the first time, uh, it will be, uh, they will have to, councils will have to provide uh, accommodation for women seeking uh, support with domestic abuse. And that is a mass, I never thought we were going to get that change. So that is a massive thing. So uh, hopefully that will increase, if not the number of beds, but where those beds are and stops at your postcode lottery. Uh, another thing um, that will uh, likely, uh, that would affect um is that, that we have now got the, the definition of domestic abuse, um, which includes not just the obvious sort of uh, acts of violence that were defined uh, in criminal law, but also issues around coercion, financial control. And also the, the definition has expanded to include children who grow up, who grew up in a domestic violence situation. So for students, um, at your university there will be uh you know there, there will be lots of them who grew up in an environment um uh, of domestic abuse they will now according to the law be considered to be victims of domestic abuse themselves and therefore uh, one will hope that that will improve services for you know later in life um for community support and um for, for people who have been traumatized by experiences in their childhood uh, it won't overnight change the response because it's not a legal duty to provide community-based or psychological support but give me some time i'm going to make sure that is the case eventually um the um there's uh, stuff around uh, protective police orders so you can now police officers can have a specific order um around domestic abuse like a restraining order but one that is specifically around domestic abuse that has the power of arrest if, if it is breached which previous orders restraining orders etc don't, don't have the power of arrest on um breach so that's only as good that's a that's a really good law and i'm really pleased with it but it's only as good as the number of police officers we have actually to respond to that thank you jess uh this is a very clear explanation of the key changes of the new domestic abuse act so we also see that from this act there is a definition of children as a victim of domestic abuse so how is it significant of having this new definition well, there's a very fundamental thing that they would be able to do, and that is take a criminal case against somebody and be considered a primary victim. So one of the reasons that domestic abuse cases fall apart is because the victim doesn't want to come forward. And I'm not saying that that would necessarily be easy for a child, but um, certainly I'm currently looking at legislation around uh, improving that with regard to sexual violence. Um, because I have worked with uh, a number of women over the years, and, and this will be exactly the same for men, um, where they are children born of rape. They are literally evidence of um, violence that occurred to their mother, but that their mother never wanted to take a case, but that they want to. Um, and so um, there's, uh, the, there's that element of it. So that, you know, if as an adult you wanted to take, uh, I mean, and as a child, but if you wanted to take a case and report the abuse that you had suffered, domestic, specifically domestic abuse, and it didn't mean you had to be struck, 
we're going to hopefully start to see cases that would be able to be taken by uh, adults who had suffered um, and want to see protections put in place. Um, so, I mean, it is a huge step forward. And, and originally when the bill was floated, children weren't included. Um, but also practically on the ground, it, for the first time, it accepted that you didn't have to be a direct victim of the violence or the financial coercion or the coercion mm -hmm. to be affected by it. I mean, mm -hmm. the effect of a child and, and the vast majority of, of domestic abuse happens in the next room to a child. And the effect that that has on children has never, it's never been considered their story. And it's about mm -hmm. empowering it to be their story as well as their mom's. So we see there are more protections to the victims of domestic abuse in this legislation. So that should be something that uh, we need to do to fight against the perpetrator. So we see that there is a new statutory duty to Secretary of State to impose a domestic abuse perpetrator strategy. So what do you think what should be included in this strategy? Um, what needs to be included is a proper prevention strategy, whether that's um, an education prevention strategy at all stages of life or uh, a strategy for educating people post abuse. Um, there needs to be a monitoring like we literally don't know where most of the perpetrators in our country are. There's very, very little in the way of local uh, joined up strategy about perpetrators who move from one abuser to another. Um, it's So the strategy needs to be really, really far reaching about stopping the incidences of violence through education and prevention programmes, but also monitoring uh, uh, perpetrators where they are and have an actual, well, just like some sort of body and study that tells us what we should be doing in our country and whether prison works, for example, you cannot say at the moment, because there is nobody really properly monitoring it, whether the 12 month sentences, less than 12 month sentences, which is the vast majority of cases of domestic abuse would get a less than 12 month sentence, whether that is working at all or what programmes are happening in prison uh, or what programmes are happening external to it. There is literally nobody. If I could ring up the Home Office now and say, can you tell me what is being offered to perpetrators through the courts in Hampshire? And they would say, no, I can't tell you. Nobody knows. Hi Jess, Clara here. Hi. So you were saying some really interesting things to Maya about progress and the myth of progress. I wanted to get your thoughts on the social context. Back in 2017, we saw the Me Too movement start. Mm -hmm. More recently, we saw protests in response to the murder of Sarah Everard. And also the Everyone's Invited website attracted a huge amount of testimonies from young people speaking out about their experiences of abuse. So it it does feel like in, in some ways we're building some kind of momentum here, mm -hmm. uh, especially in those expanded public forums you touched on earlier. How would you describe what's happening right now? Yeah, look, if I were to be cynical, I would say after the Me Too movement, not a single piece of legislation in our country changed. We fought to end non-disclosure agreements at work in cases of sexual violence and sexual harassment, and we got literally nowhere. It's on a shelf somewhere, having been consulted on. 
Um, do I think the workplace is better or safer? Uh, no, is the answer, uh, I'm afraid. However, public opinion and strength of feeling amongst women and now much more so amongst men. The Me Too movement, I think lots of men felt was an attack on them. The Sarah Everard thing, it was like, it started to be like men, men saying, hang on a minute, this is on us now. We've got to do something about this. And so at every stage, we move the political power of this situation forward. Just after the Me Too movement, it felt like a bloodletting for us, but it wasn't enough. But it built up to the situation that allowed the political power to gain even more tension and even more legislation when Sarah Everard was murdered. And so we're now at this level where they would never put out a Queen's speech without saying the words domestic abuse. They would never stand up in Parliament and with a budget without saying something about domestic abuse. And when I entered Parliament, that was not the case. And so the more the public care about it, the more political power it has. And the more political power it has, the more likely these things are to change. Um, so, you know, the Me Too movement in and of itself in the United Kingdom changed no legislation whatsoever, changed nothing about the workplace. Apart from some individual workplaces will have responded really brilliantly. Some will have responded appallingly. Where I work had a total meltdown and still yet to be seen whether uh, anything better has actually come of it. Always remember that the writing down of rules is very different to how they are actually practiced. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. So you, you mentioned briefly that men are now waking up and, and joining the conversation about violence towards women. Uh, that does seem to be the case. But when I look at those involved in campaigning for change, I still see a serious lack of a male presence in this discourse mm -hmm. about what is, yes, a gendered crime, but a social issue that affects us all. I was thinking about the Black Lives Matter movement, which stood out finally because it managed to gain solidarity right across society. Mm -hmm. We're obviously not getting that same kind of solidarity for the issues we've been discussing today. Why is that? Um, the fundamental reason for that is, is that everybody after the Me Too movement recognised that we all know victims. We either are them, they're our sisters, our daughters, our wives um, and our mothers. We've got much better in the last 10 years of saying, Domestic abuse isn't something that happens over here. It, we all know somebody who it's happened to. But statistically speaking, if we all know somebody who it's happened to, we all know and love people who are perpetrators of it. And that is much harder for people to show solidarity for. And I have watched people who have been out on feminist rallies that when I've told them somebody that they love, I've had a complaint about them. They go, oh, no, they, they must have misunderstood. And we do this victim blaming thing. People find it very, very, very painful to admit that they know somebody who perpetrates the, even the lowest level of sort of misogynistic sexism. And so to show real solidarity is to sort of accept that male violence is everywhere. We've got to learn to have a better conversation Oh, I don't, you know, I don't mean to invoke stupid chat about cancel culture and things about what it means to know somebody who might have done something. We've got to overcome the fear of the damage to reputations 
but when we, we we haven't found a way to properly discuss that is the trouble all we know how to do really is to campaign properly for better more criminalization better prevention and better support um, because that's the less difficult box but the difficult box is dealing with the million 2.3 million people are currently living with domestic abuse millions of people in our country are abusing women and you definitely know them it's it's so complicated um you can go down the route of saying we're all victims of the patriarchy and we need to shape the narrative in a way uh, that it includes men um but at the same time you have to say hold on you know we need to prioritize taking care of and, and helping the victims and the survivors mm. can we really be responsible for everything all at once also men have all the power so they can include themselves just as much as they'd like good point so for my final question jess um i wanted to talk politics if that's all right um, no, i don't mind so uh i, I wanted to talk about class and, and, and privilege really um, the our current government is made up of men and women that come from a place of extreme privilege. Mm -hmm. um, you have worked on the front line and then transitioned into that world. Um, mm -hmm. I was just wondering, do you see that privilege affecting the way that they handle these kinds of issues and policies? And mm -hmm. uh, do you think Labour is any better suited? Um, on the first question, absolutely. The worst thing about the people you're in front of is that they think they're cleverer than people who come from where I come from. Like, it, like genuinely, Boris Johnson believes that if, it, and whether Boris Johnson believes it or not, I'm actually not sure, but David Cameron definitely did, that if he'd been born in a tower block at the Maypole in Birmingham, that he'd still have ended up the Prime Minister because he's just such a clever boy. Oh, somebody once said to me, oh, you couldn't have got into the school David Cameron went to. I said, no, because... I, I've got the wrong organs is the reason I couldn't have gone there. <laughs> Consider my womb the biggest barrier to the reason why I couldn't have gone to David Cameron's school. Um, and also, yeah, of course I couldn't have gone there because my parents thought, oh, education should be free. And that makes them surer than they should be about their decisions because they think they're coming at it from an intelligence perspective. Um, that they're cleverer than the lumpen proletariat, for want of a better word, and that they can trick them. And that is absolutely maddening to sit by and watch. Absolutely infuriating. And they also fail up. Like, it is just unbelievable how you can just do something wrong and somehow that means that you, oh, he's a nice chap, we better put him into a different job because he's just not suited for this one and it's just like, oh, I'll fire him. Um, yeah, that happens all the time and it is just like, Jesus Christ, you've never, you wouldn't know boo from a cow's ass, as my father would say. Um, but the... That, so that definitely um, makes them make the wrong decisions regularly. Uh, it, and is the Labour Party any better suited uh, to do that? Fundamentally, on an ideological level, yes. However, what the Labour Party is not better suited at is making the people believe that. And that is an enormous deficit on the part of the Labour Party at the moment, is that actually, if anything, it appears to people like we're talking down to them not 
Boris Johnson, I swear, the question I'd like to ask everyone in the country is, do you think Boris Johnson would send his children to school with your children? One of his daughters brought your son home. Do you think Boris Johnson would allow him to marry her? The answer is no. Hi everyone, I'm Grace and I'm going to be moving our podcast in a slightly different direction now as we're going to talk about the role of teachers and the part that education has to play in all of this. As Maya said at the beginning, our podcast is designed to help teachers deliver the SRE syllabus, which in a nutshell aims to protect young people and help them to manage their social, academic and personal lives in a really positive and meaningful way. Obviously, domestic abuse is included in this, and this is why we have you here today, Jess. So from your point of view, why do you think it's important to educate children how to recognise and deal with domestic abuse from a young age? Safeguarding is the first and foremost reason why this should be being spoken about from the age of four upwards. I mean, I'd go even younger. My children were completely au fait with the idea of... um, that you know that some people got live in violent homes from when they were very very little because they used to come into refuge every Christmas to go to the Christmas party. They're not, they weren't frightened by the experience. They they understood it, and so, and I know that if my children ever needed to talk to me about something, that those formative experiences would have made it simpler for them to verbalise that. Um, to give people the language is really, really deeply important because we don't, we, we have to be given permission. A lot of people, and it's to do with privilege and class and gender and identity of all sorts, is that some people need to be given permission to step forward and say what they might need to say. And so speaking about it in schools gives just gives children that permission uh, from an adult to, to, to speak uh, about it. But so putting safeguarding aside it's not so much that people need to learn about domestic abuses that they need to learn about healthy relationships and that they need to learn what good looks like because even if you're not growing up in a domestic abuse situation you may very well be growing up in a situation where one person in your house has more power than another person or um, you may well be growing up um, with attitudes towards different jobs or different lifestyles that um, that that you just don't know about the other things, the other possibilities. Yeah, that's so true. Children need to know what a happy, healthy relationship looks like so that they can recognise the opposite as well and compare the two. And what you were saying there about um, teaching your children about domestic abuse when they were really little and before they even started school is quite interesting because there has been some debate online about whether it's appropriate for young children to be learning about sensitive issues like domestic abuse. Um, I think I'm on the same page as you, though. I think often people underestimate how much children can actually handle so there's yeah. al- there's always moral panic when you want to talk to children about literally ev- anything. Yeah. You yeah. name something and there will be some moral panic. And what I'd like to say to all adults in that circumstance is you think they're not talking about it already. You think that there are yeah. two-year-olds living with domestic abuse right now because there absolutely are. Yeah, I completely agree. It's just so important to start spreading awareness about this issue. We wanted to ask you as well, Jess, are there any common myths or misconceptions surrounding domestic abuse amongst young people in particular that you think teachers should try to debunk in the classroom? Yeah, so uh, I mean, already uh, the one about um, domestic abuse being about people who can't control their anger is uh, is a a dangerous myth to perpetuate because because what we should be teaching children is um, that we all have control over our behaviour. 
um, and that we all make choices and it is the choices that we make as individuals that lead to the outcomes um, in our relationships and that we can choose. Yeah, I can't lie, I have come across that myth before and it always seems such a damaging thing to say to a young child. Maybe to just move our podcast in a slightly more positive direction, could you give some advice to instill confidence in teachers who might be feeling slightly anxious about teaching this topic in their classroom? Yeah. So what motivated you to want to educate others? I mean, really, it is it is a difficult subject, but it's yeah. nowhere near as difficult to live with the, than it is to live with the consequences in your classroom and in, um, you know, just your emotional um, ability to cope with your job. Now, teachers have to deal with huge amounts of emotional strain they've become social workers they've become housing officers police officers you know the the amount that is expected of uh, teachers uh, these days in certainly in schools in in tough neighborhoods is absolutely massive um but not talking about the not talking about something never made it better silence has literally never changed anything and if you don't sort of do it if you don't you know if you don't tackle it and feel like you've got to and sometimes you do just have to take a deep breath and be like oh come on you can do this I do it as well it happens to me if you don't the consequences of turning up one day when one of the kids in your class has been harmed or their mom is dead that is going to be much much harder to deal with Yeah, I completely agree, Jess. I think you've made a great point there. And teachers dealing with the issue early on is really important so that the problem doesn't escalate. And that's something that really hit home with me. So at the moment, I work part time as a maths tutor in schools and safeguarding is something that is taken really seriously. It's a massive part of my job because a school is meant to be a safe place where children feel comfortable talking about their problems. So from your experience then, and this is our last question to you, can you pass on any elements of good practice to teachers to help foster an environment where children feel comfortable disclosing their problems? Yeah, I mean, there's there's, there's lots and lots of good practice over the years. And what we, the, best, the best thing is what we would call a whole school approach um, to safeguarding and um, violence against women and girls. And that, that is that it is uh, sort of mainstreamed into the ethos of the school that these things are fine to talk about um and that it's it, it's it's not just in your safeguarding policy it's also in your behavioral policy about what you will and won't tolerate within your school that gets said between boys and girls uh, the kind of thing that will happen that it's talked about properly i think there's a, a terrible sort of statistic that somebody re- re- once uh, recently sent to me that it, almost every single text on both the gcse and a level text has violence against women and girls in the text somehow and so how are we discussing that um and how are we analyzing that uh, in our classrooms rather than just being a sad story about a woman um and you've got to you've got to make it about everything that you do is about kids the reason that being good at maths is good and the reason that being good at english and the reason that being good at school is good is because what we are trying to create is happy healthy adults thank you jess that was really uplifting and i think that's a perfect note to end our podcast on Hopefully our listeners have been inspired by our conversation today and are feeling much more confident about approaching this topic in the classroom. 
I think we all just want to say another huge thank you, Jess, for joining us today. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you. And I'm sure my other co-hosts would agree that we've all learned a lot from today's insightful discussion. So thank you once again. We really do appreciate it. And to all our listeners, if you're interested in learning more about this topic, please feel free to check out our complimentary episode on domestic abuse as part of the Sex Laws and Audio Tapes podcast series. And thank you all for listening to today's episode.